Well, we're going to continue right in our study, uh, our survey through the Old Testament. Of course, we're in 2 Samuel, and this is all part of a series that we're entitling Days of the King, and we're looking at First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles. And as we've been going through Samuel, we've been referring to Chronicles where there is a correlation. And so today, we're going to be in chapter 12 of Second Samuel, which is the halfway point for the book. And I think it's a pretty significant halfway point because really it, it kind of is like a turning point in David's life. So I want you to reflect with me for a moment. If you could think back to 1 Samuel, when Saul was rejected and the Lord told Saul through Samuel, I'm going to take your kingdom and give it to someone after my own heart, a man I've already, your neighbor, I'm going to give it to your neighbor. We saw then that Samuel anointed under the direction of the Lord, David, the young boy, to be king. We saw him enter into Saul's service. We saw Saul's jealousy. And we saw him being on the run from Saul up until the time of Saul's death. He then has to wait a number of years before he finally becomes king. In becoming king, he really establishes the nation Israel, makes Jerusalem his capital city, brings the ark to Jerusalem, wants to build the Lord a temple, but the te Lord says, no, your son will do that, gives him the Davidic covenant. And it looks like, even because last week we saw him really taking on all of the nations around him and subduing that, we kind of ended with the war with Ammon. We're going to pick up with that today. And it seems like everything is going well in David's life. Well, the problem is, it's usually when things are going well that you let your guard down and you sin. You make mistakes. And that's what really Samuel is going to bring out. Now, it's interesting. Samuel, the writer of 2 Samuel, will record these events of David's sin and the ramifications of that in his life but when you go to Chronicles, the chronicler really doesn't refer to this. For some reason, he has decided this information is not pertinent to what he wants to bring out in his book. They each have different purposes with their book. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today is not referred to at all in First Chronicles. In fact, at the end of the events that we're going to look at today, Chronicles will not record anything else until David's census, which is at the end of his life. So the next few lessons are going to be basically sticking to 2 Samuel. But today we are in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and chapter, excuse me, chapter 11 and chapter 12, and we're looking at just three verses from 1 Chronicles 20, verses 1 to 3. Okay, so let's take a look at these passages. We're not going to read them. We may refer to them as we go along, but let's kind of take a look at what's happening here. So we want to divide it into two sections, really. First of all, chapter 11 is going to talk about David's sin, and then we're going to see not just his sin, but the cover-up in chapter 11, and then we're going to see David being confronted in chapter 12. So let's take a look here. So let's start off, first of all, with David's sin. It starts off, the start of chapter 11, verse 1, it starts off like everything's normal. In fact, Chronicles, it starts off like everything's normal. So in the springtime, when it was normal for nations to go to war, Joab went against Ammon. Now remember last week when we stopped, they were just in beginning of their battle against Ammon. Ammon had hired the Syrian nations, the, uh, and the nations there that were there, the city nations that were there, and, and basically David defeated them and they said they would never help the Ammonites again. 
Well, that chapter 10 didn't end with the defeat of Ammon yet. They're still in this war. And it's, and it's not like a two-week war, folks. This is time. So we're in the springtime now when we come to chapter 11. And what we're going to see is that it's the time when kings go to war, springtime. That would be the time when people would go to war, not during the winter. And Joab goes to war against Ammon. Now, 2 Samuel points out that David, instead of going with his troops to war as he would normally do, David would normally be the one going with his troops to war. He remained in Jerusalem as the army of Israel laid siege to Rabbah. Rabbah was the capital of Ammon. And so the army of Israel laid siege to the capital. All right, so he remained in Jerusalem while the army went. Now, remember now, David, if you remember his story, look, David was a shepherd at one time, used to being in the field, a warrior used to being in the field. So he's in his palace, and during the evening he gets restless. So one evening... David arose from his bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. Now, I don't want you, I want everybody here to understand, when we talk about if you were to go to palace, to, to Israel today, the roofs there are not like the roofs we would have here in Kerwinsville or in Clearfield County with a pitch. You know, we have roofs that are with a pitch. You might occasionally have a flat roof, but that doesn't make sense to have a flat roof in an area where you have snow. And usually when you have a flat roof, you have a problem around here. But that's not the way it is there. In their area and in their culture, even to this day, roofs are flat. The roofs of most buildings are flat. So David's palace would have a flat roof. So one evening, he's restless. He gets up. He's walking around on the roof. Okay? Walking around on the roof. Now, David, while he's walking around on the roof, saw a beautiful woman bathing. Now, we're not talking about swimming here, folks. She is cleaning herself. Now, here's the problem. Most people, when they read that, they think about, well, David's up on his roof, and he's looking over into the next house, and he sees a woman either through the window or whatever, or in a big tub out in her backyard, bathing, and so that's where he saw her. Well, yeah, maybe around here, but that's not true there. First of all, people didn't have indoor plumbing. So when it talks about her bathing, probably what we're talking about is, is as he's walking around on his roof and he's looking out over the city, Probably near the palace was a communal pool. Now, what do I mean by a communal pool? Well, they would have pools of water where people would go to wash themselves, to get water as they needed. They would get those from wells or cisterns. But it would be a pool where people would go and congregate at during the days and so forth. So this is probably at night, so she could be discreet. She would go to the communal pool at evening when there's very few people there, and she would bathe. She would cleanse herself. And David is up on the roof, and he sees her. Okay? He's seeing her at this communal pool, and she is very, very beautiful. And as we've already seen, David has many wives and concubines at this point, so that's very much a reflection that he likes women. And so this leads to a series of events that ends in tragedy. So let, let's go on. So we're going to see what happens here. So here's what happens. He goes beyond looking to inquiring. So he inquired as to the woman's identity and he was told Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite's son. So he was told 
This is Bathsheba. Who you're talking about is Bathsheba. And she's married to Uriah the Hittite. Now, who's Uriah the Hittite? Well, Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. This is one of the men who joined David when he was running from Saul. He's one of the mighty men of Israel. One of his right-hand men. And he's a Hittite. What is a Hittite? Well, he belongs to the Hittite people who are a Canaanite people. He's not an Israelite. But at this point, it appears very much so that he worships the Israelite God, as we'll see from some of his actions a little bit later. And he's married, married a Jewish lady. And so David inquires, and he finds out that this is Bathsheba, somebody else's wife, and it's not just anybody's wife, it's a wife of one of your mighty men. Okay, so that in, in itself should be enough pause, right? First of all, that she's married. Second of all, she's married to one of your men, your mighty men. But David's not restrained here. I, the text is just a narration. It's just a story. We can assume motives by reading it, but we don't really know. All we know is what he does next. And here's what he does. David sent for her and then took and had sex with her. That word took very much has the implication that in his position of power as king, he just took what he wanted when he did. He took her. He had sex with her. First of all, he sent for her. Bring her here. He then took her, and then he had sex with her. He lay with her, is what the scripture says. And then it tells you that she then went home. I mean, when he was done, she went home. Not a good reflection on David, is it? Okay? Now, the scripture then finishes out here in verse 5 by telling us that Bathsheba sent word to David that she had conceived and was bearing a child. So when he had, the text very much implies that when he had sex with her, she was at that point of her cycle where she was fertile. And of course, having sex, she um, conceived a child. Now it's not Uriah's child because Uriah's fighting the Ammonites with Joab. It's David's child. It's the only possible that it's David's child. So she sends a message, we got a problem here. We have a problem. So what happens from this point on is, really when you look at verses 6 through 27, is really an attempt by David to cover it up. And what you're going to see is, is that David makes three attempts to cover up this sin. Three attempts, the first two fail, but the third one, it covers it up, so to speak. Well, of course, there are others who know better. But for the reality is, is that for everybody else, everything seems normal. This is just the kind of stuff that kings do. At least that's what the Gentile kings of the nations around them do. So let's see what happens here with his attempt. First attempt. Upon hearing the news, David sent word to Joab to send him Uriah the Hittite. Well, David's got this figured out. He says, okay, I'll just bring Uriah back. When he sees his wife, we'll let the birds and the bees take over. Nature will, will, will handle this. Of course, he will be with his wife. And of course, she can say that she got pregnant by Uriah. And it will never be a problem. Sounds pretty logical here, doesn't it? That's what most people would think, yeah, well, this will cover it up, right? Okay. So he sends word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. When Uriah arrived, David asked him all the news concerning the war with Ammon. So everything's got to appear normal here. So when Uriah arrives, the king says, okay, I want a report. Tell me everything that's going on with Joab and with the army and how goes the battle with Ammon. And of course, Uriah fills in the king on the war report. So when that's over, he sent Uriah to his house to be refreshed 
with a gift of food. So the king says, okay, you can go. Go on, you go home. Wash your feet, meaning be refreshed. And here is a gift of food. So he's going to send Uriah home. Okay, this should take care of it. Not going to be an issue. Well, the text tells us that that is not what Uriah does. Rather than going home, he didn't go home at all. Uriah, the warrior, slept at the door of the king's house with the servants and did not go home. So what did he do? He's a man of honor, a man, a military man, a man of duty. He sleeps at the king's door. Now, not at the front door, folks. It would be like the entrance to the palace. There would be quarters there. There would be areas for the servants where they would stay. And he stayed there. He slept there that evening rather than going home. The next morning, of course, the news gets to David that this has happened. Well, that just creates a problem, okay? Because this was supposed to settle the issue, right? You're going to go home. You'll see your beautiful wife. Let nature take its course. Well, that's not what happens. The next morning, David asked Uriah why he did not go home since he had traveled far. Okay? So the next morning, it's like, hey, wait a minute now. Why didn't you go home last night? Why did you stay here? Why did you stay here, sleep at the door, the, the entrance to the palace with the servants? Why? You should have just gone home. And I gave you food. I refreshed you. Why did you do this? Notice Uriah's answer. Uriah felt that it was not right to go home while the ark, that is the ark of the covenant, and the armies of Israel were in battle. Whoa. That, my friends, is a big contrast here, isn't it? Because when you start out in verse 1, it says when kings go to war, David stayed home and the armies went with Joab to Ammon. Who stayed home, folks? David. And Uriah is here. He's got the opportunity to go home. He doesn't go home and he says the reason why he didn't, because he just felt like it wasn't right that while the armies of Israel, who he's a part of, are fighting and the ark of God is there with them as they're fighting Ammon, he should do, he shouldn't comfort himself. <laughs> wow, what a rebuke to David. Wouldn't that have been? <laughs> Wouldn't that have been? That, that is so amazing to me that this is the man of integrity. So David then told Uriah to wait until morning, then he would send him back to battle. So David says, okay, stay with me one more day. I'll send you back tomorrow, okay? I'll send you back tomorrow. You stay with me one more day. Well, here's what happens. Here's the second attempt. That evening, David made Uriah drunk, hoping that he would go home to sleep. So David's thinking, if I get him drunk, his natural instinct is to go back home drunk, and that'll take care of it. Yeah, but it doesn't work out here with the second attempt. Instead, Uriah went and slept with the servants of the king and did not go home. What did he do? He just went right back to the door of the palace, went to sleep in the area with the servants, and didn't go home. And of course, the king hears that. So the next morning, here comes the third attempt. I call it the fatal attempt. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and had Uriah deliver it. So he wrote a note. Of course, he would seal it as they would seal things in that day to make sure nobody would open it up. He wrote a note and sent it to Joab, the commander of the armies of Israel, and Uriah was to deliver this message. The letter commanded that Uriah be placed in the hottest battle and be abandoned to death. Basically, Uriah was delivering his own death warrant. David was telling Joab, you put him in the hottest battle, and when things get hot, 
you withdraw the rest of the men and you allow Uriah to be killed, to be slain. Basically, David's third attempt is to have Uriah killed. One of his mighty men. One of his most honorable men to cover up his sin. That, my friends, is the depravity of the human heart, isn't it? That's the depravity of the human heart. So, of course, Uriah gets back, delivers the message to Joab. I'm sure this probably raised an eyebrow with Joab when he read this letter, but he was obedient because the text will tell you that Joab placed Uriah with some of the, with some of the best against some of the best troops in Ammon, where he died with others. So here's the thing. Joab would know where the best troops are from Ammon because he's the commander of the Israeli army. He knows what the line looks like. So he puts Uriah against some of the best troops, the most valiant men of Ammon, and uh, that's where he died, as well as with others, with other Israelites. So it's more than just Uriah dying. Now, we like to say, well, David had Uriah killed. I'm going to tell you, folks, this strategy of putting him there in the battle ended up killing others as well. And that's the reality of sin. Listen to me. That's the reality of sin. Sin never is a private thing. This wasn't just an indiscretion with Bathsheba. This was something that resulted now in killing Uriah, but not just killing Uriah, but in killing how many other Israelites as well. That's what you see here in this narrative. Okay? So Uriah died. Now, Joab then sent a messenger to inform the king concerning news from the battle. So Joab's got to send a message back telling him that he did what he was asked to do. But he's got to, I mean, it's all part of the cover-up. You can't have other people knowing, hey, go back and tell them I made sure I wiped out Uriah. No, no, he's not going to do that. He's going to do it in a way that it doesn't look abnormal. So here's what he does. He says, he told the messengers that if the king objects to the death of some, tell him, tell him Uriah was also dead. Now, here's, here's what, if you read the text, it, it kind of says, if you tell them that some were killed in this battle on this part of the wall, David would object and say, wait a minute, don't, didn't we learn anything from when that battle happened against Abimelech in, uh, in the book of Judges and how that woman threw a stone down from the wall and crushed Abimelech's head? Didn't we learn that you don't get near a wall during a siege because this could happen? And Joab says, if he starts talking that way, then you just say to him, as well, my also king, Uriah is dead. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. Tell him that. That should settle it. Of course, the messenger goes. The messenger relayed the message, relayed the news from the battle, and that Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. In fact, there was no objection. As soon as he gets there... I mean, the messenger decides, I'm, I can see what he's thinking. Let's get this over with. I'll tell the king the news. I'll get relaxed or whatever and before I head back. So, of course, the king says, how goes the news? Well, some of it was a battle and some got killed. And Uriah the Hittite was killed. That's interesting. The king doesn't even bother fussing about how, many, how the people died. Actually, it shows you the cold, calloused heart of David at this point. Because here's what he does. David relayed that Joab should not be discouraged since this was the course of war. Go back and tell Joab, don't be grieved. War kills people. People die in war. This is normal. We win some, we lose some. Don't be discouraged. Here's what else he says. Joab was to strengthen his attack and overthrow the city. Just just press on. Just press on. Do what you got to do. Overthrow the city. David, one of your mighty men who was with you when you were running from Saul, is dead. 
That's just the course of war. Sin hardens your heart. It's calloused. Now, there is some ramifications for this, and the text kind of tells us that. It tells us, as you continue on there, that when Bathsheba heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. She loved him. That was her husband. That was her husband. In fact, I'll be honest with you, when you read the story of the confrontation and what uh, Nathan shares about the poor man, it's very much a picture of Uriah. So she was very much treated well by Uriah. And now he's dead because of David. And she mourned for him. Now, the text also tells us that after a period of mourning, this would be a period of days or a couple of weeks or more, David sent for her and she became his wife. David didn't waste any time. He didn't waste any time at all. And basically... Okay, we got to get her in here. Let's wait till the period of mourning. As soon as the period of mourning is over, he goes and gets her, and she becomes his wife. <laughs> Should be okay now, right? Should be okay. Yeah, that, that, that baby didn't come full term. It was kind of premature, but it was still healthy. It wasn't a full nine months. It was six months. Yeah. Yeah. She bore David a son, and then the scripture tells you, and the Lord was greatly displeased by what David had done. She bore him a son. Now, I think it's interesting. Samuel doesn't tell us the name of this boy. The writer of Samuel never refers to the name of this boy. In fact, nowhere in Scripture will you see any reference to the name of this child. And I think it's because he didn't live long. He didn't live long at all, which we're going to see now. But that brings us really to the end of chapter 11. And so now we come to chapter 12, which is the confrontation, which is Nathan the prophet, confronting David. So we're going to focus then on verses 1 to 25. Now here, I, I, you know, we often when we look at these chapters, we're, we're focused on David. We're focused on his sin. We're focused on his cover-up. We're focused now, we're going to be focused on his confession. But I think when you read the narrative, you also got to hand it to Nathan, Okay. You have to hand it to Nathan. Here's why. The Lord sent Nathan to see David. I think it's interesting when you look at verse 12, all it says is this, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. All right, now, you've got to hand it to Nathan because you're talking about going before the king. You're talking about going before the king and telling him, this is what you did. You didn't do right. You sinned. That takes a lot of guts to do that. That takes a lot of character to do that. That takes a fear of the Lord to do that. This says a lot about Nathan. Because here's what we see in other, other passages throughout the Old Testament when we get to that point in Kings. We'll see other prophets who go before kings and say things that the Lord has told them to say, and they have to either run for their lives or they're thrown in prison or they're killed. But Nathan, each one of them, as well as Nathan, they did what they were told to do. So here's what Nathan does. He comes to David he tells David a story. He tells David a story about two men, one who was rich and the other who was poor. So he's going to use a story that David can relate to. How can David relate to this? Well, he's going to use a story because David was a shepherd and he understands the whole issue of taking care of sheep 
and the whole culture around that. The rich man had great wealth and large flocks, while the poor man had one little lamb. The scripture says a ewe lamb. It was a female lamb. So the rich man, he's got wealth. He's got all kinds of flocks. This poor man, he's only got one little lamb. The poor man treated the lamb as if it was his own daughter. The text in the story will tell you that Nathan says that he fed it from his own table and he loved and cherished that lamb like it was his own daughter. It was a part of his family. There was an intimacy towards this animal. Nathan goes on with the story and says that the rich man had a visitor. Now, what was the culture in that day? When a visitor came, you had to prepare a meal. That was the laws of hospitality. So the rich man had a visitor, and he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for a meal. This is how despicable this guy is. This guy could have taken his from his own flocks to feed his own visitor according to the laws of hospitality. Rather, he took this lamb from the poor man, had it killed, and prepared for a meal for his visitor. And that's the story that Nathan brings to David. Well, the text goes on and, and it tells you uh, David's reaction. So after hearing Nathan's story, David became very angry at the rich man because he had no pity. So David is infuriated when he hears the story. He would, he would be because he took care of sheep. He understands the culture. He understands what's right and wrong. And he understands basic morality of pity. This guy had no pity in taking this lamb. And he's angry. So David stated that the man deserved to die and he must make fourfold restitution for the lamb. So basically, David, as a king, is saying, this guy deserves to die, and here is my decree. That guy will need to pay back for that lamb four times. He's, he's showing his authority as the king, executing judgment on what is an irrighteous event, a terrible event. He's mad. Here's how Nathan responds. Nathan proclaims that David is the man. Whoa. Look, when you read that story, you cannot help but sense the tension that you could you can't help but sense the anger from David towards this rich man and the lack of pity and that he needs to make restitution. He deserved to die. And Nathan says, you're the man. You are the man, David. You did this. You did this very same thing. And here's what he says. He stated that the Lord anointed David to be king and delivered him from Saul. He says, look, the Lord anointed you. He took you from the sheepfolds. He anointed you to be king and he delivered you from the hand of Saul. The Lord gave you, gave David all that his master had along with Israel and Judah. Here it says, he gave you all of his master's wives and concubines. He gave you everything that belonged to Saul, and he gave you Israel and Judah. He gave you everything, David. The Lord stated if that had been too little, he would have given more to David. He said, David, if it was an issue that you didn't think you had enough, you could have gotten more. God would have blessed you. He would have given you more if you thought you needed more. Nathan questions David as to why he was despising the Lord and doing this great evil. Listen, folks, this isn't just a little discretion. Oh, he had an affair. Oh, that was terrible. Oh, oh, yeah, he, yeah, he, he kind of got rid of the guy. He's the king, of course. 
This isn't some little thing here. This is an evil, Nathan says, and that he was despising the Lord by doing this great thing. He stated that David killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife. He killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You say, well, of course it wasn't David's sword. No, he goes on a little bit further in a text and he said, you killed him with the sword of Ammon. It wasn't your own personal sword, but you used Ammon to kill him. Listen, this has got, if you think about this, this had got to be shocking David in the moment because look he's tried to cover this up in fact his cover-up was working and here comes the man of God who knows exactly what's going on why because God told Nathan everything that David did and Nathan is now confronting David with his sin and the reality of it. He goes on, the writer goes on, and Nathan pronounced that the sword would never depart from his house. David, you used the sword to kill Uriah. That sword will never depart from your house the rest of your life. And folks, I'm going to tell you right now, when we get into chapter 13, it's almost immediate. You cannot remove the consequences. Look, I hear people, well, God forgives. God forgives. Yes, God forgives, folks. And we're going to see that God forgives David. But God doesn't remove consequences for sin. And this is the consequence for his sin. Yes, he's the man after God's own heart. Yes, he's been promised that he will have someone in his house always on the throne. But David, you crossed the line. And you've got to bear the consequences of that for the rest of his life. The sword would not, would never depart from his house. Wow. The Lord will raise up adversity against David. And you're going to see that. There is adversity that's going to be raised up against David, not just from within his own household, but even from within Israel itself. It's not going to be smooth sailing from this point on. Not going to be smooth sailing at all. The Lord, here, I wish you, you have to be shocked when you read this. The Lord will take his wives and give them to a neighbor who will have sex with them. He's basically making a prophetic statement. At some point, I'm going to take your wives and give them to your neighbor, and he will have sex with them. It even goes a little bit more specific than that. What David did in secret will happen with his wives in broad daylight. Here in a couple of lessons, you're going to see that prophecy being fulfilled and you will be shocked by what happens. This is the consequences. God forgives, but he doesn't remove the consequences, folks. And here's what happens. Here's what David does. When he hears this, <clears throat> David confessed to Nathan that he had sinned against the Lord. He admits it. He makes confession. And I'll be honest with you folks, if you really want to know his confession, you just simply need to go over to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 51. And there, in the opening section of Psalm 51, before you get to verse 1, it tells you that this psalm was written by David, a psalm of David, after he had committed sin with Bathsheba. And we have that with us forever. And it, it tells you what confession is. He confessed his sin. 
Nathan stated that the Lord had put David's sin away and that he would not die. All right, let's stop for a moment. We're forgetting some things here. I think this is a good point to make this point to you. Uh, we're forgetting some things here, and that is when you commit adultery, what did the law call for? The law called for you to die. Well, he's the king. Yes, but the law called for him to die. And basically, that's why David's been covering this thing up, to protect her and even to protect his own neck. Now, he had a greater chance of getting out of it because he was the king, but she sure didn't. Because the law called for her to be stoned. But the Lord says, I've taken your sin away. That is, a, that is the picture of forgiveness. God, when he has forgiven us, he has taken our sin away. And he says, you will not die. That is, you will not die because of this sin. Physical death because of this sin. However, because of the severity of this sin, the child born to him will die. God says, because of this sin and the severity of it, this child will die. This is a consequence, David. So after Nathan departed for his house, the Lord struck the child and it became ill. It just says that. Now, you might wrestle with that in our modern sensibilities. How can God do that? Folks, this is the consequences of sin. This is how he's being punished here. And I, I, I can't explain why God did that. I just need you to know that this is what happened. As soon as Nathan left, that child became ill. David pleaded with the Lord for the child as he fasted and laid down before the Lord. The text implies that David immediately went and he prayed before the Lord begging God for the child to be spared, and he laid before the Lord. He fasted and laid before the Lord. It seems like for a period of at least seven days that he did this. So basically, he's fasting and laying on, his, on the floor, weeping and crying out to God to be merciful for the child. Now, this, of course, would bother the servants and the elders, the elders went to David to raise him up, but he refused their pleas and to eat. He refused food. They're trying to, they, come on, David, you got to, come on, it's going to be okay, buddy. Just come on, get on up. No, no, I've got to pray and I don't want any food. They were concerned for him. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants were afraid to tell David. Basically, they say, you know what, if we tell him, if he's been acting this way while he was sick, what in the world is he going to do when the child's dead? We can't tell him. David perceived that the child was dead and asked the servants about the baby. So David could tell from their actions, I think the, the baby's dead. So he asked. Of course, they tell him. Now they're afraid. They're worried. How's he going to react now that the baby is dead? Well, upon hearing the news, David washed and requested food. He picked himself up. He washed himself, anointed himself as they did in that time. And... He requested food to eat. And that just, the text tells you, that just blows the minds of the servants. What's going on here? He fasted and laid down for seven days, crying out to God, wouldn't eat anything, wouldn't take care of himself. While the ba baby is sick, now he's dead, and he's going about like life's normal. What's going on here? So they ask him. Servants asked why David was acting this way. What's, what's going on here, king? We don't understand. And here's what David does. David stated that he fasted and prayed because God could possibly spare the child in his mercy. This is David's understanding about God. I, I am, my mind is blown. Here is David. He has sinned. He's done wrong. God's forgiven him, but God's also chastised him and judged him. 
But David still has a concept of his God being loving and merciful. So here's what he does. He prays and he asks God and pleads God just in case God would be relent. That's what he's asking for. He's asking God to relent. He's interceding on the, for the mercy of God. We've seen that in other places. My mind immediately goes back to Genesis. When Abraham interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain, will not the righteous judge do right? Spare the city for ten? This is David's attitude. Wow. That is so merciful. I think that should guide some of us in our thinking. You know what? When we see God's hand of judgment... We need to ask for him to relent, and that's what David was doing. David states that he cannot bring the child back to him, but he can go to the child. It's from this that the whole concept of an age of accountability has sprung up in the church. And that's what we believe here, is that there is a, there is a point when a child who has no understanding of right and wrong really can't be go to hell for his sins because he didn't make that choice. He's not able to make a choice yet. And while we don't take doctrine from narratives, this is what seems to be the implication here. And this is what he's talking about. Although some would say, go to him, that may refer to death, but I think it's a little bit more to him. The child can never come to David in comfort, but he would go to be with the child with the Lord with the Lord. Now, the text goes on and says that David comforted Bathsheba concerning the death of their child. Because you got to remember, this isn't just David here. There's a mother. And the bond between mother and child and the loss there. And David comforted her. Text also tells us that she conceived again and bore a son which they named Solomon. Wow, I've heard that name before, haven't you? Solomon. The Lord loved this child, the text says, and sent word by the prophet Nathan concerning his love. This is what amazes me. The text very clearly says that God loved this child, Solomon, and sent word to David, I love this child by Nathan the prophet. Wow. Wow. So now that brings us to verse 26 through the end of chapter 12, but also back to verses 2 and 3 of 1 Chronicles. Because while this is all going on, remember, there's a war going on. There's the battle against Ammon. And so what you're going to notice when you come to verse 26 is that David sent messengers, excuse me, Joab sent messengers to David saying that he had taken Rabbah's water supply. Now that would be very important to any city. If you have a city that's under siege, one of the things that will help you withstand a siege is that you have a supply of food and you have a supply of water. And Joab says, okay, we're getting close to the end. I took their water supply We're close to the end. In fact, he says, he told David to bring the rest of the people, meaning the army, to take the city or he would. Joab understands his place. He wants David to be the one who will be the conqueror of Ammon. And so he says to David, hey, get out of that city. Get out of your palace. Bring the rest of the army. You take this city or I will. And if I do it, I'll name it after myself. So David gathered the remaining army and went and took the city of Rabbah. So he gathered the rest of the army and he led the troops and they took that city, the Ammonite capital city. He took the crown of the kings of Ammon from the Ammonite king. He himself took that crown off of the Ammonite king, 
And the text tells you that they placed it on David. He took great spoil from the city and enslaved the people of Ammon as workers for Israel. That's what he did. And then the text tells you that he returned to Jerusalem with the army of Israel. They just went back home. And I guess when you look at it, you think, well, life just goes on, doesn't it? Yeah, but it doesn't. It doesn't because, remember, there are consequences. And remember what Nathan told David, that the sword will not depart from your house. And so now, we're not going to hear from the chronicler anymore for a while. But when we get into chapter 13, we see that there are problems in David's home between his children that are tragic. And we begin to see the consequences happening in David's life. Now, this is what's amazing to me. You know what? Most, most places and most nations and most peoples, when they, when they write stories about their great heroes and their great kings and leaders, uh, they always present a good face. That's just the nature of the way things are. You never talk about what somebody did that was bad. But that's not the way it is in God's word. Even somebody who is a man after God's own heart, David, whom the Lord loved. The scripture is very frank and not just telling you the good things about David, but the bad things and the tragedy that resulted from his sins. And so we're going to look at that starting next week.